Hey friend, and welcome back to the Alex Makes VR podcast. Today's episode is episode number 80 of the podcast. I cannot believe that we're at episode 80 already. Thank you so much to everyone listening, for sharing and supporting the podcast. I tell you what, it has been absolutely amazing to hear the stories of the people listening to this podcast. You, you listening, you have heard some of the advice that I've given, you've heard some of the experiences I've shared, and you've gone and implemented that in your life. I've heard from people who have literally gone from knowing nothing about um, immersive creation Uh, to having like a side hustle that pays as much as their full-time job. I've heard from people that have landed their first five-figure clients from the advice in this podcast. I've heard from people that have gone from, you know, sending out emails and getting nothing to sending out a new email following my email template and uh, getting tons of responses, building businesses that were struggling before. That makes me so happy. And it's not too late for you. If you are someone that's listening and you haven't got around to implementing the advice yet, absolutely, there is still all the time in the world. And I'm hoping that today's episode will inspire you and give you some insight on how to approach businesses when it comes to selling in VR. So today's episode, I am interviewing a a good friend of mine and also a client of mine, Jeremy Dalton, the head of VR and AR at PricewaterhouseCooper, PwC UK. Um, Full disclosure, Jeremy has been writing a book which gets released on January 3rd, uh, 2021. Don't know why I said it like that, 2021. Isn't that weird that we don't describe the date as 2000s anymore. It's like 2021, 2022. We don't say 2021, do we? Anyway, uh, (laughs) Jeremy's releasing a book called Reality Check XR. It's basically the holy Bible of why VR and AR is good for businesses, how businesses can use it, how you as a creator of VR, AR, virtual tours, 360 video, whatever it is you do, can approach businesses. What are the use cases? What sectors does it thrive in? Also dispelling some myths around the technology. Um, Full disclosure as well, I actually got to write a whole chapter for Jeremy's book. It's called A Beginner's Guide to 360 Video. It's one of the most in-depth things I've ever done. I literally dissect the process of creating a 360 video uh, for an enterprise bit by bit, literally pre-production, production, production, post-production, everything within that, working with actors, working with presenters, you know, working with uh, certain cameras, working with certain crew members. What crew members do you even need? What things do you need to consider when scripting a 360 video? Literally, it's it's a real comprehensive breakdown. Um, so if you want to uh, get a copy of the book, I've left a link in the show notes um, of this episode where you can pre-order and get 20% off. Absolutely no pressure though. And we do cover lots of really interesting um, subjects in this episode, uh, including, I have written them down so that I could give you a little sneak peek. One of the best bits of advice I think he, uh, Jeremy talks about is his five phases of implementation. So this is how, you know, you've approached a business, you've sold them on the idea of VR. Now what? He breaks down the process, how when you, from the second that they kind of commission um, the VR piece to 
it being designed, developed, deployed, rolled out, you know, what feedback you need to gather. He literally breaks down that process step by step. So listen out for that. That was really great. I also ask him about, you know, times that he's had to tell people that VR isn't quite right um, for for a kind of idea that a business has pitched him. Um, we talked about the key use cases. We even talk about the mass adoption of technology and why it's actually a bit unfair to say that VR uh, is kind of lagging behind in terms of mass adoption compared to other technologies because Jeremy goes into a quite in-depth what other technologies, how long they took to be mass adopted, how we even define mass adoption. So some real, real nuggets of gold in this episode that I really hope you enjoy. Like I said, I don't normally do guest episodes. You know me, I'm more comfortable just pacing around my room like I am right now, just talking to my iPhone. Um, But it's sometimes good to to kind of get out there and get someone else's opinion. And Jeremy obviously heads up a department who work with global brands. I've had, you know, um, the fortune um, and I'm very honoured to have done a lot of projects uh, with Jeremy over the last a few years and they genuinely as a department are constantly pushing the boundaries every time I think you know well that can't be done they prove me wrong um, and I'm always always up for hearing what Jeremy has to say as he's literally on the forefront of convincing enterprises and businesses that VR and AR is a worthwhile investment so I'm going to stop rambling now. Enjoy my chat with Jeremy Dalton. And like I say, if you want to support him um, and in turn me um, and also just have literally the play by play of how to approach businesses and why um, why businesses should be investing in VR and AR, you can pre-order the book at the link in the description below. Okay, I'm stopping now. Enjoy this episode and I will speak to you tomorrow, guys. Cool. So I'm not going to lie to you, Jeremy. This is the first time that I've had to actually pre-think about a podcast because as you may know, the Alex Makes Me Our podcast pretty much on the fly. So, (laughs) (laughs) So forgive me if I'm a little bit rusty, but Jeremy Dalton, you are by far one of my favorite people to talk XR with, just in general, in life. But you you say that to everyone, Alex. Well, luckily you'll never know because none of the the conversations (laughs) I have are usually recorded. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true, like we've been working together, you know, and and kind of known of each other now for, for a good few years. And we've kind of seen, you know, the the hype and then the die down of the hype and then the rehype again of XR technology and yeah so I, I guess for this podcast I really would love to just kind of pick your brains on behalf of the listeners about all things VR and business because most people listening they're either new to VR or they want to get into VR and especially they want to know how best they can serve businesses. How can they sell in VR when, let's face it, we're at a time where it's still really new. So before we dive into all of that though, give the listeners a bit of background. Who are you, Jeremy? What do you do? How did you get into the crazy world of XR? So, um, I currently lead the virtual reality and augmented reality team or XR team at PwC in the UK and um, also the author of a book that is specifically about XR and business and that's called Reality Check. And uh, I got into XR probably I'd say around 2015, uh, just after the the Facebook purchase of, of Oculus. 
and I started to see the business potential there, even though it was it was very much a consumer item in the public's eyes back then. Um, I felt that there was definitely something here for businesses to latch onto. Um, so I spent a few years campaigning at PwC to try and get them to build a dedicated virtual reality and augmented reality team. And thankfully, in September 2017, after a lot of hassling, they finally gave in and uh, and gave me the the role to lead the VRAR team for the UK. So no pressure, but you did wear them down and promise them that it would be a worthwhile investment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm still waiting to hear back uh, from any praise on them, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, listen, guys, I don't want to say I told you so, but I did kind of tell you so. <laughs> That's great. So in the last kind of few years then since the team was set up, what are some of the kind of key, I guess, use cases that you've identified that XR really excel at in the business kind of arena? So I'd say there are there are a few and a lot of people a lot of people think about the applications of of virtual reality and augmented reality thing but they they're different technologies although very closely related and that's why we put them under the banner of xr um, but if you think about virtual reality for example fantastic way to train individuals because virtual reality is all about immersion it's about it's about placing you in a different environment a different set of circumstances someone else's shoes and because it excels at, at, at giving you that immersive feeling it is really good when it comes to training on soft skills, when it comes to um, helping from a diversity and inclusion perspective in, in organizations, um, even practical skills that where you need to get hands on with a subject and you know, pick up a tool, um, attempt to communicate with someone over a walkie-talkie, use a carbon monoxide monitor on a on an oil refinery and attempt to spot like a, or find a carbon monoxide leakage in time. All of this sort of stuff, these, those scenarios can be created in virtual reality and delivered to you as software. And that's really fantastic because you think about the business outcomes that that allows. That allows you to conduct this training in a cost-effective way because you don't need to rent a site, you don't need to travel anywhere. Um, you don't need to um, you don't need to have anyone managing the site so in terms of uh, human resources. So you can literally just have all of that contained within the software that sits on the headset and just put the headset on in the comfort of your office and the comfort of your own you know home, bedroom, living room, wherever, and immediately get get immersed into that world and uh, and feel like you're in that world. I think that's the real the real strength of VR, that's giving you that feeling that you are in that environment. Because otherwise, how do you train uh, public speaking, for example? The only way to do that, or, or how businesses usually do that, is you do it by, it's trial by fire. So you go straight in and you start delivering loads of talks to loads of people. Now, you can do that, but opportunities to do that are going to be few and far between. Alternatively, you can role play but that's quite resource intensive because you've got to bring loads of people in. You've got to, you know, set them up. You've got to agree a timing. Things have got to align. They've got to work out. And it's expensive compared to a VR solution as well. And especially if you're trying to mimic a crowd of 100 people, that is, it's not even feasible at, at that level. 
But in virtual reality, I can, I can click a button or probably more accurately gaze at a button. And then all of a sudden I can be enveloped in this auditorium with a thousand people. And you may wonder, okay, but that's software. We know these people are not real. So it's not really that effective, is it? So for those of you who haven't tried virtual reality and effective virtual reality applications of this sort of nature, you will very soon realize after trying it that it does really tackle that lizard part of your brain that, that instills fear in you. <laughs> that flight or fight response. Um, so if you're standing digitally in front of this auditorium of 100 or 1,000 people, um, you will feel, or let's say, not all of you might, but a lot of you will feel a sense of, uh, sense of nervousness, a sense of fear, uh, anxiety, worry, and there will be pressure on you and the learnings that you get from being immersed in such an environment, you can take to the real world. So in summary, it's, virtual reality is a, is a wonderful training tool for, for both soft skills and practical skills training. And those are really the, the big areas that we see. Um, but there are also loads of other areas. I mean, we can go on about, and you can decide where you want to take this, Alex. So I'll, I'll give you the option, but we can talk about remote collaboration, you know, working together and collaborating in virtual environments. We can talk about remote assistance. Um, we can talk about forensic visualization. So going niche into different industries. We can talk about using augmented reality for, uh, to highlight hidden utilities and underground infrastructure below, you know, in the subterranean world beneath us. We can talk about using virtual reality as a new way of working, you know, from an operational perspective. Um, you know, there are so many different areas and, and, and places that you can go with this technology that it has applications across all industries. And I would challenge anyone to find a business and an industry where there is absolutely no use for virtual reality and augmented reality. I guarantee you, there always will be some. No. Oh. That's what I'm talking about. Let me just clap. <laughs> that just got me fired up like, yeah, you're right. There's so much opportunity. Because it's interesting because where we are right now, I feel like, although literally every single thing you've just said, I totally agree with. And also it just, again, it recaptures the imagination of the fact that actually there are so many use cases, use cases that we might not have even, like you say, discovered yet. But actually when you start digging deep enough into a business, you could be like, well, actually anything that needs to replace something that is resource intensive or dangerous or would just be, you know, quite uh, infeasible, if, that, if that's even a word, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. not feasible to, to kind of scale quickly or roll out virtually or remotely. Um, that is where VR is kind of best. But when you are a VR creator and you go into a business and this business has never, never really heard of VR before, if they have, it's usually like some kind of gaming gimmicky context. It's harder to kind of to get them to buy into this idea, right? With where we are right yes. now, yeah. what are some of the key things that you find help when you're having those initial conversations? Because obviously, you guys within um, your department in PwC, you are like I always say, you're kind of like a mini startup. It's like you are you are doing what all of us VR creators are doing. You're going out there fighting for fighting the good fight to get businesses to believe that VR and AR absolutely. Is a it's a big evangelist yeah. mission for us all. Yeah, exactly. So, so what do you find, how do you find some of those conversations go? What are some of the biggest things that businesses go, oh, you know, I'm not sure about that or how do you? So, 
I think you get, you do get a lot of disbelief and you do get a lot of skepticism. Uh, we encounter that regularly. Generally, what I find though, is that the skeptics have, haven't tried virtual reality firsthand, or they say they've tried it, but when you dig in deeper, they haven't really. Because when they say they've tried virtual reality, they mean that they put on a cardboard headset once, stuck their phone into it, went on a roller coaster for 30 seconds, <laughs> <Always laughs> roller coasters. <laughs> feeling super queasy and said, well, this VR stuff is not really for me. So I think there's a lot of education that has to go on around it. And you can tackle that, I'd say, in two different ways. You've got to tackle it from a business perspective and you've got to tackle it from an emotional perspective. So from a business perspective, you've got to convince them on paper that there is a business case for adopting this technology. And there are, there are many ways of doing that. You can, you can bring in analyst reports. You can bring in sneaky plug. Some of PwC's reports. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, yeah, big fan. We've, we've done studies on you know, the value of soft skills training for, in, in, for virtual reality, for example, and that's been quoted a lot. And, and, that, and part of the reason we did that is to provide people with that ammunition to take to businesses to say, look, a study's been done. This, these are the results. This is the result of virtual reality versus classroom training versus e-learning for the same content and for the same objective. So that's thinking about it from a business perspective. Then you've got to tackle them from an emotional perspective. So once they've been bought in, business-wise, and they see it on paper and they go like, okay, okay, so PwC is saying this, you know, IDC is saying that, Gartner is saying this, we've got, you know, these startups here who clearly succeeded in delivering to businesses, you know, with their, their uh, case studies as well. So that's all well and good. Um, but you still need to, you need to help them really, you need to drive it home. And the only way to do that is because virtual reality is such an experiential technology, you need, to, you need to take advantage of that momentum and get a headset on them. So based on, on dumping them with all that information and connecting it to their business case, to their industry, to their problem ultimately, uh, you've got to then give them a valuable experience. And when I say valuable, it's gotta be, it's gotta be um, connected to their problem, preferably connected to their industry, and um, also, preferably, using the same type of content that you're advocating for. So if you're advocating for, and this is going a little bit into the detail, but if you're advocating for a 360 video-based solution to them, then ideally show them some 360 video stuff because you're creating a sense of expectation with whatever you show them, and that has to be met. If you're planning on doing some 360 video, and you show them a, a, a volumetric uh, you know, video-based um, application, if the end product doesn't look like what they've seen, then it's going to be a challenging conversation for you. So true. And, and it's interesting. I've never heard it articulated that way about the idea between you know, the business case, but also then tackling the emotional the case. <laughs> yeah. I've, like, I've never really thought of it in that way, but it's so true. It's so true. Well, one thing that you've kind of like 
I mean, there's so many different ways where I'll kind of want to take this, but the, you've already kind of started to give us a picture of like, so you've had that first conversation. Okay. Now that person is like bought in. All right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe this is for me. I've like, I've actually done the physical, physical experience and you know, okay, let's give this a go. We want to do a pilot. As you've already said, you are bringing out a book, uh, uh, reality check XR. Um, and Chapter six is five phases of XR implementation. So I wonder if based on the fact that, you know, you've got a business excited, we're, you know, we're now doing a pilot, what then are those five phases? So the five phases are discover, design, develop, deploy, and debrief. You notice how they all conveniently start with a D. That was, that was on purpose. No, that was it. Took all night to come up with those Ds. It, it, it took a while. I have to admit, I was battling with different words, you know, things like devise. You know, I think he devise, but ah, doesn't really sound great. Doesn't really give you that right image. So, yeah, we ended up with, with design instead. But That's a real <laughs> awesome you, problem right there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> true consulting problems. There you go. <laughs> So uh, to give you a brief on all of these, discover is the very first phase. And, and these are all designed to be self-explanatory. So with discover, you're helping the client discover the value of XR technology. So this is where you're showing them the where you're, you're building the business case and the emotional case, as we spoke about. Once they are bought in and they think that, yes, this could actually be a viable technology uh, to solve some of our problems. And, and as an aside, by the way, I should have mentioned this. Problems are not only current problems within business, but they are also potential future problems as well. Because yes, an efficiency in your business, the fact that you haven't taken advantage of an efficiency, may not be a problem right now, but when your competitors have taken advantage of that efficiency and they're all performing at a higher level than you, then it does become your current problem. Mm, that's so true. it doesn't matter whether it's current problems or future opportunities. Future opportunities are simply problems in the making. So those can be tackled as well. But basically, going back to the five Ds now, the five phases, uh, discover you've got them bought in on the emotional case and the business case. Next, you're going to move to design stage. So this is when you start getting into the nitty gritty of an XR solution. You've got an idea. You, you know how it connects to the problem. And now you've got to actually design that solution. Now, when I say design the solution, we're not only talking about designing the software. This is important. We're talking about designing the deployment and we're talking about designing the debrief stage of it as well, the data analysis, the data collection. You've got to think about all of these things right at the beginning before you bring in any software developers. You've got to think about the user experience of, of the software. You've got to think about um, well, the scope of the software. What are you going to include in it? Um, what are people going to be able to do, the user stories? You've got to think about how you're going to bring this, how you're going to make this work within the organization. How many people are you going to run it with? Is everyone going to have their own headset? Are you going to have a central location where people go to, uh, to, uh, to and book into uh, to run their, their session with? Um, is it going to be given to the whole workforce? Is it only going to be given to a small team? How many months is this pilot, if it is a pilot, going to run for? Um, how are you going to communicate it to the organization to make sure they buy into it? You know, so a little bit of change management there, a little bit of stakeholder management. 
media and communications, software development, design, user stories, user experience. How are you going to, what data are you going to collect? How are you going to collect that data? Is it going to be automatic? Is it going to be manual? Is it going to be within VR or is it going to be outside VR, you know, in a, in a survey or something on an iPad? All of that stuff needs to be designed right up front. And only then when you're happy and the stakeholders and the project sponsors are happy with, with how this has, uh, has been written down and panned out, then you can move to development stage. That's not to say, of course, that you can't change things. Of course you can. You know, you've got to work in an agile manner at the end of the day. However, you need to think about a lot of these things at least at a, at a surface level to get a high-level idea of where you want to go with the product. So once you've designed it all out, you're into the development stage. This is where your software developers come on board when you're starting to, to actually build the software. And, uh, and depending on how you, on what sort of content you're using, that development may actually be more production-based. So for example, if, you're, if your uh, VR product is a 360 video, then most of, your, most of your work in the development stage will actually be 360 production. And there will be a minimal amount of piecing things together at the very end from a, a game engine perspective within Unity. But whichever way you go, this is building the software or building the content, I suppose, more, more accurately. Once you've built it, you're obviously going to, you know, you're going to QA, you're going to do your testing, you're going to make sure everything's suitable, bug fixing, troubleshooting, all that sort of stuff. Testing with your end users to make sure that uh, what you thought was going to be effective is indeed effective. and then you're ready to move to deploy stage. Now, deployment within the organization is very often overlooked. But as I mentioned before, to make this a successful implementation of virtual reality, you're going to have to figure out how you get this onto the heads of different people, or in the, or in the case of an augmented reality application, how you deliver the software on their mobile phone, or if it's a head-mounted display, how you deliver those head-mounted displays. So it depends on the content, it depends on the hardware you're gonna use, but those will all influence you actually putting it into practice. So this is rolling your sleeves up, actually going down to the workplace with your, um, you know, with your team and putting the headsets down there, training the trainers, uh, communicating to the workforce how it's gonna go down, how long is it, all those sort of details. And when you've deployed it, and when you started to run it with those people and those and those different teams, after a period of time, you know, you've got, or after a number of people have been through it, let's say 100 people have been through it, you know, in a, in a month or two, you're going to have to start to look at those results. You're going to have to debrief, in other words, the final phase, the data that you collected during that, uh, that deployment. And that's going to allow you to to understand how effective that solution was. It's going to enable you to think about improvements you can make to it. It's going to enable you to hopefully build a business case for the stakeholders, the stakeholders to say, look, we deployed this with a small team, you know, in the, let's say the UK region, and it was only a hundred people, but we got these results. You know, 20, it, it showed a 20% improvement in, in uh, learning the, the procedure that we wanted to learn or whatever it is you're trying to achieve, you roll out all of those KPIs that you would have thought about at the design stage in terms of how they relate to the data you're collecting. And uh, you build that report ultimately in the debrief stage. You deliver it to stakeholders. And once they are happy that it's been a successful solution, you can use that report and that business case 
as a in a way going going full circle back to the discover stage to show them look here is the business case for something that is really close to your business problem. So now we're no longer talking about data analysts and consultants and what they're saying. We're talking about an actual virtual reality deployment with your workforce that, that delivered these results. And therefore, I would like more money and more time to deliver a much larger implementation in your workforce. And, and that's, the, that's the ideal play, in my opinion. That, that is so... Every single step of that is so, it sounds quite like daunting, I would imagine, for some kind of like solo creators out there. But when you actually break it down like that, it is actually so simple. And, you know, if we were to take that whole process and distill it into, you know, you are a solo 360 creator um, and you're approaching a business, yes, I would like a simple, um, you know, 360 induction of my workplace to roll out to employees so that they can do their induction training before they enter the work, whatever it might be, you know, something super small and simple. What's really, what I want people to get from that and to really internalize is the fact that you may be a creator, you may consider yourself a creative, but the most important stages of working with businesses and getting VR commissioned and working on these kind of projects is that upfront discovery and design phase and the debrief because like Jeremy outlined it is a full circle and actually if you just rock up to a business convince them that they need a 360 video and you go in there create it and then you leave it with them they don't know what to do with that they might not implement it properly and then they might think it was a waste of money compared to the money they could have spent on a traditional kind of um, video campaign or something like that include in other words include within your project time and resource to develop that reporting to make it easy for them to invest further in the technology. Have you ever had cases where people have come to you and said, and, and said like, oh, we want a VR solution for this. And you've said, no, actually, this, is, this isn't the right use case. Like, this Absolutely. Actually, yeah? Absolutely. I quite enjoy those conversations because, uh, actually, I, I suppose I shouldn't enjoy them, but they make good anecdotes. Let me put it yeah. that way. <laughs> so one of these, uh, one of these um, stories is I had, uh, I had uh, an individual come to me and say, um, Jeremy, we, we know about virtual reality. We're really excited about it and we want to use it for training. So I was like, okay, well, that sounds, that sounds brilliant. You know, training, one of the big applications of virtual reality, as I, as I mentioned earlier. So yeah, yeah, let's have a conversation about this. Let's, let's dig into the detail and, uh, and get stuck in and hear more about this. So I got on the phone with them, and it very soon transpired that what they meant by training was training on a CRM, customer relationship management platform. So stuff like Salesforce. In other words, a web-based um database of customer details and and you know conversations you're having with them and an audit trail of that sort of stuff they wanted to train their workforce on how to use that web-based software but do it within virtual reality (laughs) i thought to myself this i I can't really draw the connection to the strength of virtual reality here because you you've always got to think about the strengths of the medium and make sure they connect properly to the, uh, to the solution or the problem, let's say you're trying to solve. So in this case, improved training of how to use Salesforce, a web-based platform. Virtual reality strength is in immersing people in a three-dimensional world. 
I couldn't make the connection. I tried hard. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and eventually I said, look, it's, it's just not the right technology for this. And I tried to outline that, uh, just what I said here, you know, you've got, you're trying to improve Salesforce training. Salesforce is a 2D web-based product. You are talking about a, uh, a technology which immerses people in a three-dimensional world. There is no connection there. And uh, I wouldn't advise like going ahead with, with using VR for this purpose. Thankfully, they didn't push it any further than that. And that was, that yeah. was the uh, last conversation I had on this and uh, potentially the last conversation I'll have with them forever. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is. It is a duty on all of us, I think, to reject potential opportunities, and they, they sound like opportunities, but really they're pseudo-opportunities, to use virtual reality or augmented reality where it doesn't fit. Because if you do that, a few things are going to happen. First of all, you're going to get paid. That's fine. Okay. But then you're going to deliver the project and you're going to put it in the organization. And the, the, at the debrief stage, you're not going to you're not going to be able to produce a good business case that then takes you back to for the company to invest further at discover stage uh, because the connection won't be there the effects won't be there as a result uh, people's feedback uh, will not be positive and uh, you're going to be left in a fairly embarrassing situation where at best you're just not going to do any more vr projects with that client again um, but at worst, you've not only screwed yourself over, but you've potentially screwed all the other people in the, in the VR and AR industry over as well, because the client now has this impression that virtual reality completely fails for them because they tried to, uh, they tried to shove a square peg into a round hole. They tried to use virtual reality where it wouldn't fit. Totally. And that's the thing, it doesn't do anyone a service. Like the, the quick payday is not worth it to potentially collapse the whole industry. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so obviously you've spent how long uh, have you spent like writing this book? Uh, I spent it's probably been a good I reckon it's a good year because I signed the the contract with the publisher back in September 2019 and yeah I delivered the book about September 2020 uh, yeah. so yeah it took a good 12 months not all of that was writing mind you <laughs> a lot of a lot of that was um sort of feeling miserable for myself during the the very start of the pandemic while I was holed up at home <laughs> and I was thinking to my and then my my my, my editor at the, at the publisher got furloughed and I was thinking oh god I just felt completely disillusioned at that point so there was definitely a break, a clean break, where I didn't do any writing for about, you know, I think it was maybe two months or something. But uh, then, then, then my editor got unfurloughed very quickly, and all of a sudden I had my, my deadline looming. So I really had a fire lit under me. <laughs> and from that point onwards, it was literally, you know, all weekends, all evenings, all mornings. I took holiday from, you know, PwC annual leave to, to continue writing, and for the first time ever in my life, I pulled a triple all-nighter. It was an absolute disaster. <laughs> I don't fancy doing that again. <laughs> that is great effort, though. To be fair, like I, I'm curious then because you've spent the better part, the better part of the last year, regardless of the, you know, the the couple of months feeling sorry for yourself, and then all of a sudden, oh crap, like. 
let's get this done. Um, out of that year, what would you say is the most, because you would have done a lot of like research, although you already know like a lot about this industry, you would have had to do a lot of research for the book. What was the most interesting mm. thing that maybe came up or you found out through the research process? Oh, I found out like so much really exciting stuff. Um, I think one of the, let me bring up one of the really, really good stuff that I, I found. It took me a long time to write this section, by the way. Um, I'm just trying to find it now. I've got a draft of the of the book in front of me here. Um, yes, yeah, so here it is. So this section is um, is called VR is dead. Okay. <laughs> uh, the important, yeah, yeah, exactly. The important thing to bear in mind is that this is in quotation marks in the book, right? And the the heading under underneath which it sits is called Common Misconceptions and Criticisms of XR. So bear that in mind when you hear about the title of VR is Dead. And this is a bit of a bugbear of mine because the reason you hear VR is Dead in the media a lot is because they haven't done the analysis. They haven't looked at the data. They haven't looked at the numbers. What they're going off is very much anecdotal evidence and a knee-jerk reaction to news that sales expectations of virtual reality headsets were not met. Of course, sales expectations weren't met. The, uh, the, the expectations were set at a super high level, and that's understandable. And even though they, they weren't met, and maybe they won't even be met in the future, but that is, to a large extent, completely irrelevant when it comes to the future of XR. Because first of all, when you look at sales, uh, sales in, the, in the consumer space, that is what you're looking at. You're looking at sales in the consumer market. The business market is a completely different beast. So bear that in mind whenever you hear any news, whether it's from a, an XR manufacturer or whether it's from the media, talking about discontinuing this product or you know, VR is dead because of X, Y, and Z, a lot of the time, it doesn't have major ramifications on the business environment because the business world will use a tool. It doesn't need like mass support for business to use a tool. It just needs a project sponsor and a state and a key influential stakeholder in the organization to buy into it and dictate uh, what needs to be done. So going back to your original question, Alex, what, what, what did I find really interesting in this section? VR is dead. I outline my whole argument for why, you know, this doesn't make any sense at all. And, and I took it all the way back to the, the beginning of time almost. And, and I have to admit, this was when I was perhaps a little bit more philosophical when I, <laughs> in my writing of the book. But I basically said, look, the, think about the concept behind virtual reality. Virtual reality is designed to immerse you in a completely different world. It's designed to, uh, to, speak to or communicate to you about the environment and the situations you're facing. And it tells you a story ultimately about, um, and it could be anything. It could be for entertainment purposes. It could be for informative purposes, you know, business training, so to speak. It could be for persuasive purposes to try and convince someone to, uh, to buy, you know, an asset or an environment or whatever it is uh, to sell a vehicle. Um, and so on. Uh, but ultimately, this is, if, if you abstract virtual reality from technology, so from headsets and things like that, and think about the objective, the concept, it's storytelling, really. And storytelling has been around for as long as humans have been around. So I tried to look at, you know, how far back does storytelling go? So I found about, uh, I found out about the, uh, 
the Lacor Cave, and I'm probably saying this wrong, but it's spelled L-A-S-C-A-U-X, if anyone wants to check it out. And it's near the village of Montignac. Oh, I probably messed that one up as well. Uh, in southwestern France, if you can find it on a map <laughs> instead of my pronunciation. This is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's home to over 600 paintings that cover this cave's wall and ceiling. Now, the paintings depict a variety of animals, humans, and geometric signs. And in an attempt to interpret the paintings, one theory put forward by some anthropologists and art historians is that it was a record of past hunting successes. Another theory suggests that it was, it was to encourage the success of future hunting activities. But whatever the reason, these paintings are a great example of primitive communication and storytelling that are estimated to go back as far as 15,000 BC. So that's as far back as I went with it. But you can find examples throughout the ages. You can find the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, arguably the history's oldest known fictional story. And uh, that was 3,400 BC. Um, then you've got, you know, the everything up until the modern day world, you've got traditional sort of text-based storybooks You've got cinema as a film of storytelling. You've got theater. You've got video games. You've got art. All of these are storytelling in different senses and ultimately meet that objective of virtual reality. And to bring it home even further, think about specific types of paintings that have appeared in, in humanity's history, like uh, panoramic paintings. They were famous in the 1800s. You know, there were these really sort of long and tall paintings, and if you stood in the middle of it, you felt like you were enveloped in that environment. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with virtual reality right now. We're trying to envelop you or immerse you in these different environments. It's just for different purposes and, uh, and for in different contexts, that's all, and using different technology. So we're not using paint anymore. We're using, you know, uh, we're using screens, we're using sensors. We're using hand-based uh, tracked controllers, all this sort of stuff to deliver you into that world effectively. But I'm just going to take you through one, one thing uh, more on this, this long circuitous route, Alex, because I think people will really appreciate it. Uh, and this, this goes back to what I was saying around a lot of the media don't look at the data that sits behind virtual reality. So largely what I've, I've told you, up, uh, you know, now, up until now, is has been somewhat anecdotal and it's somewhat just me building a case, you know, based on what I feel is, is a valuable argument. But from a data perspective, if, if people, people generally are impatient about virtual reality and how long supposedly it's taken to reach mainstream adoption, but how do you know it's taken so long? Who's done the analysis to say that it's taken a long time or a short amount of time or an average amount of time? I wanted to do that analysis to really put it out there. So that's what I did in, in this book, in this section. I first looked at how to define mainstream adoption, because that itself is arguable. And I found my answer in, in a book by, um, by a chap called uh, Jeffrey Moore, and the book's called Crossing the Chasm. Now, he takes a theory from the diffusion of innovations. If anyone's heard about the diffusion of innovations, this is where it tries to explain the, um, uh, the, the adoption habits of, of consumers when it comes to technology. So it says the first two and a half percent of people to adopt technology are innovators. The next 13 and a half percent are early adopters. 
Then the next 34% after that are the early majority, the next 34% are the late majority, and the final 16% are the laggards. Now, in crossing the chasm, Moore explains that when you jump from the early adopters stage to the early majority stage, in other words, at the 17% mark, that's when you really hit, start to hit the mainstream audience. And it goes from becoming a, a niche thing to something that is, that is basically on the path to mainstream adoption. So I said, okay, that seems like a reasonable argument and, and um, uh, Moore has a load, of, uh, a load of arguments within his book about why he's, he's chosen that particular point. But let's say 17%. The key thing is just to be consistent here. So taking 17%, how have other technologies in the world fared, all right? How long did they take from, and I took a fixed point here, from being sold you know, to consumers in a consumer-type forum like a supermarket or something uh, to reaching 17% mainstream adoption? And the results may surprise you. So I'm actually going to start with the one that was quickest, the quickest technology. That's the radio. The radio took six years only to go from first being commercially available to consumers to reaching 17% of US households. It beat out the internet. The internet was eight years, right? How long it took. The computer was next at 19 years. The tablet took 23 years. <laughs> the, mi the microwave took 26 years. And the landline, right, the telephone that many people still have, you know, <laughs> I think it's, it's a very dwindling technology, yes. but it's still around. That took 29 years to reach mainstream adoption. So Alexander Graham Bell patented the telephone, and it was granted in 1876. The first home telephone was installed in 1877, and it took until 1906 for landlines to reach 17% adoption 29 years that is amazing exactly and now you may be asking okay okay so how long did virtual reality take well it depends on how far back you want to go but according to my definition how i've judged all these other technologies the earliest example that i could arguably say was a virtual reality headset that got sold to consumers was actually in 1993 and uh, if anyone wants to check it out, um, you may have arguments with me about whether this counts um, as a virtual reality headset or not. But um, <laughs> this is the, it's by a company called Cybermax. And uh, they're not around um, at the moment, which is, which don't get me wrong, is, is probably a good thing once you do a little bit of research on this headset. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the headset was called the, the Victor Max. Um, so if anyone wants to search that on, on Google, it's V-I-C-T-O-R-M-A-X-X. -X. So Victimax Virtual Reality Headset, and the company was called Cybermax uh, that produced it. And actually, I think it has a, another name as well, the Virtual Reality um, uh, Stunt Master, I think it's called. Stunt um, so anyway, yeah, I know. And uh, it's the marketing for it is is quite appalling if you if you want to check it out but that was released as a commercial product to consumers in 1993 right so right now we're in 2020 about to hit 2021 
So even if you count virtual reality right now, 26 years or even 27 years by the end of 2021, that is still within the realm of how long it's taken other technologies to reach mainstream adoption. So remember the landline took 29 years, the microwave took 26 years, and we're now on 26, 27 years for virtual reality. And depending on which you know, analysts you, you talk to, the estimate for, for US household adoption of VR sits between six and 16%. So in other words, within the next year or two, we should expect virtual reality to hit mainstream adoption. And that would be the 27 year mark or 28 year mark at most. So no, virtual reality hasn't, hasn't taken uh, an extraordinarily long amount of time. Many other technologies that have come before it, both old and new, have taken many, many years to reach this mark as well. So it's important to bear that data in mind when you consider how VR is dead, when you next read that on, on a newspaper article. That is such a fascinating way to look at it because I think, and I'm guilty of this, when people ask me when I think or how I think VR will go mainstream, my image is like, you know, a bit like we are with the smartphone, like everyone has one and it's the the thing that we use predominantly. But actually, like you say, like that's just in my own head, that's my own version of what my mainstream adoption looks like. But actually, if you're going to go on this... Um, way of judging all technologies the same, maybe that that 17% is more of an interesting one to go yeah, on. And, and it's arguable as well. It doesn't have to be 17%, but the point is be consistent then in your analysis. Whatever point you choose, just be consistent with it when you're analyzing how long it's taken, the landline, the internet, radio, all that sort of stuff, which is, which is what I've done here. That's really it. And, and so... If we're looking to the future of VR then, what kind of, because we are at an interesting point, aren't we? We are, it seems anyway, it feels like we are, we are having like a, a bit of a slow growth. Obviously the pandemic has probably equally done us favors as well as kind of knocked a bit of the wind out of our sails as an industry. But where do you see the, the kind of general trends happening with VR for the next couple of years? And, and maybe in your own opinion, when do you see it being this kind of mass adopted technology that most companies will have adopted? So most companies is a difficult one because that requires a hell of a lot of analysis to try and put that down on paper and figure it out. But if you're following uh, my definition or more accurately, uh, Jeffrey Moore's definition of, of mainstream adoption, that 17% mark, um, I, I have no doubt that I'd say within a maximum of three years. So in other words, by the end of, what are we, 2021, two, three, by the end of 2023, it will have met that definition of mainstream adoption and possibly even have met that as early as 2021. Um, so I think we're really in for a, a really exciting time for, for virtual reality over the next two to three years. I think the, the consumer market and the business market will feed each other. So the more popular it becomes in the consumer market, the more familiar people within business will find it and, and be more willing to engage with it as a, as a business tool. As long as we remain uh, very helpful in terms of educating businesses and business leaders that virtual reality is not just for fun and games as we're seeing it you know, in the media and with our families and how they're using it, 
but it's actually a really powerful business tool. Um, I think it's it has incredible potential. Um, more specifically, in terms of where I think it's going on a more micro level, I'm particularly very excited about volumetric video. So, for those of you who who don't know, the way the way I see virtual reality is, or virtual reality content, I should say is that it can be based off 360 video, which is literally video in the real world, and then introduced to you in, in some sort of immersive display. It could be a headset, could be a, a cave system, a projection system, um, or you can use computer-generated uh, type content. So you can build stuff in 3D in, in Unity, Unreal, or other, other game engines. Um, and volumetric video, to a large extent, is kind of the, the best of both worlds of, of 360 video and computer-generated. So with 360 video, you, it's very realistic because it literally is, you know, it's video from the real world. Um, however, you don't get uh, the full set, the full six degrees of freedom when you're using 360 video. So you can look around from a fixed perspective, but you can't physically move left, right, forward, back, uh, get a different angle or a different perspective on the scene you're in. Now you can with computer generated environments. However, the disadvantage with them is that it takes a hell of a lot of money and resource to get computer generated environments to a level where they could be considered realistic and acceptable to some stakeholders. Whether we should be pursuing super realism or not is another argument for another podcast probably. But um, those are there are pros and cons to, to 360 video and computer generated. Now volumetric video, is effectively it's like a three-dimensional video so not only do you have a, um, a material or a skin or a texture that is the actual video of the person let's say walking around but you have their 3d model as well so there's depth information as well as that textural information that really realistic textual information as well um, and it's it just brings together it makes it look realistic and it can be it can be optimized to such a level that it actually runs on standalone headsets as well. So that's another bonus there that you don't necessarily get with pure computer generated content, which has to be um, you know built to such a level that it needs tethered headsets or headsets that are connected to computers and powerful systems to run. So I'm really excited about volumetric video. It's currently um, quite expensive at the moment or relatively expensive compared to the other types of content within VR that you can use. However, I would hope that, and I would be prepared to place a bet on it that it will become cheaper. It will, it may even become more accessible for us as individuals to use within our own homes in the future. If you look at the, the progress that's been making, that's been made on the iPhone in terms of you being able to map your own environment using what is effectively a consumer phone. That's pretty amazing. Um, you, you extrapolate that progress to volumetric video and you think as a personal individual, I may be able to produce volumetric video in a few years time. I think that is a very exciting idea uh, and concept for, uh, for everyone in, in the XR industry and even for the, the end users who will get to, to be able to consume ever increasing immersive um, you know, and, and impactful content that comes out of the, of the XR industry. I mean, I couldn't say it better myself. Absolutely phenomenal. I'm going to wrap this up now, Jeremy, because I realize that this has been a wonderful conversation, but you've probably got to get on with your day. It's um, been a pleasure. 
Yeah, as always, absolutely. And there's still so many topics that we could cover, and I'm sure we will in future episodes, including the fact that you know, we recently worked on a volumetric video project together and as both big fans of the kind of photorealism and optimizing for a headset that can be massively rolled out. I'm sure that we'll do, um, we'll do some more future content around that stuff when we can talk about that project. But in the meantime, where can people go to pre-order the book? When does it come out? Give us all the details. Sure. So, it's coming out in the UK and, uh, and, and a lot of the world, except for the US and Canada, on January 3rd, 2021. And in the US and Canada, it will be available on January 26th. Now, you can get more information at realitycheckxr.com. And I should finally say as well that uh, I don't think Alex has plugged it hard enough, but she has a chapter in this book as well that she's written um, and it is a beginner's guide to creating quality 360 video, which I'm very grateful for. So thank you very much, Alex, for delivering what is effectively a 101 manual to help businesses and content creators produce some really quality 360 video content. It was, it was an absolute honor and actually just so interesting for me to go back to that roots of like if I was to explain this to someone as someone who had never picked up a 360 ca camera before how would I explain the process of making a 360 video it was it was very cathartic um, and yeah I really enjoyed writing that chapter for anyone listening who you know you might be thinking okay but I'm not a business so why should I buy this book this book is your playbook on how to approach businesses why it would be useful for businesses this is going to give you that kind of that confidence to go into a sales situation and say, these are the areas that VR excels in. This is the return on investment that you can achieve. These are the kinds of contents you could explore, the kinds of sectors, examples of work. It's got everything. And yes, I might be biased because I wrote a chat to you. But trust <laughs> I was just going to say, I need to hire you as my PR person. I've never sold it as good as that. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. So make sure to go over and pre-order the book, um, realitycheckxr.com. I'll also leave a um, link for that in the notes. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. And we will speak again. Thank you, Alex. And thanks, everyone. Catch you soon.